Business Matters in association with the Faculty of Business at ATU Donegal. Looking for a career in financial services? Consider the Level 9 MA in Governance, Compliance and Data Protection. Take the next step in your career and contact the Exec Ed Coordinator on 918206 or email execed, E-X-E-C-E-D, at lyit.ie today. I'm Kieran O'Donnell. You're welcome to Business Matters. My guest this week is Ian Harkand, co-founder and managing director of Lottie Dolls and chairperson of Finharps Football Club. A native of the Twin Towns, he studied accountancy and business at LYIT. He established Dolly Dolls in 2012 and the locally based company currently employs 10 people. Since launching, the Lottie Dolls brand has challenged the toy industry in terms of body image, gender stereotypes, diversity and disability. Lottie Dolls are sold in over 30 countries and have won 35 international toy awards. Last year was the company's most successful, with sales increasing by 40%. Ian took on the role of Funharp's chairman back in February, 20 years after serving on the board as treasurer. He is currently working on a five-year strategic plan for the Balbuffet Club. Ian, you're very welcome to Business Matters. Thanks very much, Kieran. Ian, can you tell me how someone with a background in finance and accountancy has ended up selling dolls across the world? <laughs> yeah, that's a long story. I suppose, like, whenever I was a kid, I would have always wanted to to have my own business. Um, that would have come at a very young age. Um, and then I suppose as I was going through life and college and education and everything, while I was in school, I, I ran a coffee shop at, at school. Did you make much money? No, but it was, it was a, it was enough to pay for, like we, we, uh, we invested, we borrowed money at the very beginning actually to, we borrowed money off parents actually to put in, uh, refrigerators, coffee makers and stuff like that. And by the end of the year, we had it all paid off. So I, I thought that was a bit of a success. But, um, and, and we handed it over then to the next year. So yeah, I suppose from there on, um, I, uh, I suppose, I, I went to the college here in, in Letterkenny and, uh, I initially went into accounting and then, uh, moved into business studies and because I wanted a more general sort of, uh, education. And when I left, then I, I actually moved back into accounting and it, it actually took me quite a while to get my accounting exams because my heart was never really in it. But it was something that I knew that I wanted, uh, as, as, as another stepping stone to actually getting into business. So, um, it, when I was about 26, then I headed off to Australia. Um, I went traveling for a while, first of all, through Asia and, um, ended up then in Australia for at the time of the Olympics and had a great time over there. What, were you working there? Or were you yeah, I was working in finance as okay. well. Like, so I was, I, I was an auditor at that stage. So, um, I worked for the Australian audit office and, uh, I, I was fortunate because um, because the Olympics were on. Uh, one of the audits that I had was the Australian Analytical Laboratory, so that's where all the blood testing was done for the for the um, the Olympics themselves. So there's a lot of press and a bit of scandal and people, you know, not passing their tests and whatnot. So yeah, it was quite interesting that way. But um, yeah, spent a year there in Australia and ended up. I did a bit of traveling afterwards, um, went back through South America, North, Central and North America and ended up back in London. At that stage, I had a big credit card bill to pay off, so, uh, I figured I need to go where I learned the most and, um, 
uh, ended up in London, worked in uh, sort of corporate finance, first of all, then moved into uh, – worked for a construction company, actually one of the top ten construction companies over in the UK. And what was your role within that company? It, it was in group finance, so – I was looking, I was consolidating all of the different business, uh, businesses within this construction company. So, uh, they were doing, um, uh, fit out and they were doing, uh, public works and they were doing commercial work. And, uh, my job was to consolidate all of that and build a report. Um, I then reported into the, the, uh, managing uh, CEO and, and CFO as well. So I did both of their reports on a monthly basis. So it actually allowed me to step out of that business as well and, and do, uh, like a lot of my reporting was on a, a macro level as well. So it was good to uh, see how board level reporting worked. Um, but when I was there, there, there was a guy that I met in Australia uh, when I was backpacking at the very beginning and uh he was a product designer and he contacted me about, um, he had 10 different products that he'd developed. Uh, one of them was like this little granny. She had a, a little Zimmer frame and they were about three or four inches in height and you wind them up and you race them across the table. And, uh, he asked me, I was, I was doing initially just doing his, his accounts at the weekend and then he said, look, you know, to take this forward, we needed to raise some money. So we pitched to investors and they said, look, we'll give you the money, but he has to join in with you. So I, I bought in, uh, bought some shares, and we grew that business really quickly. Um, was that a big investment? Yeah, well, it was, at that stage, the first round was about three or 400 grand. Um, but in total, I think we raised about four or five million over the next five years. So we had offices in Hong Kong with about I think we peaked at about 13, 14 people out in Hong Kong with another two people in China just doing quality control. Uh, they made about five or six over in America and about 10 or 15 in London as well. So in that business, we were selling to high street retail. So all of the business was pretty much done in Hong Kong. So all of the in- invoicing and everything like that was done out there. We manufactured it in the factories in China. We had about 10 or so factories that we worked with. And we uh, invoiced from China to uh, straight to those UK high street retailers and then into the America and wherever other countries we were selling to. So that was a big scale? Yeah, it was. And, I, and it, it was really enjoyable at the beginning because you're going out, you're flying around the world, you're setting up operations. Uh, on my side, I was doing all the finance, sales, um, uh no, no, more sales process and stuff like that. Um, we, I would be involved a little bit in the product development, but not an awful lot. Um, uh, setting up factories, building up those relationships, finance, funding, you know, investors and stuff like that. And it ended up being more and more investor focused to that point where I would say 80 to 90% of my work was more investor related. It sounded very full on to you. It was, yeah, yeah. Um, Back in 2010, then um, I, I was engaged to a girl from Italy who uh, who sadly passed away from cancer, um, and that everything sort of came to a head at that point where I, I just said, "Look, I'm not really enjoying this anymore," mainly because my role had changed so much, uh, and uh, it wasn't the part of my work that I was enjoying. So I decided to sell up. So I sold up at that point, and then. Um, 
Did you take long to make that decision? Or was I, I think it was in the back of my head for a while, and then uh, I suppose you, when big events happen to you, 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 you not that you're forced to, but you, I suppose you have the courage to do things a lot, an awful lot more because you reflect an awful lot on on what you're doing and why you're doing it, and um, uh, and you have a lot more time in your hands, I suppose, in some ways. Um, so then I, I sold up at that point and there was a friend of mine in London uh, who was, she was doing a little bit of work with Cheryl Cole um, and uh, I, I can recall when I was in my previous business that uh, one of the highest selling dolls of all time was uh, the Spice Girls dolls and uh, we had a conversation about possibly approaching Cheryl about doing a doll but I think within Within a couple of weeks of actually having that conversation, she, Cheryl got dropped from, um, the show, uh, I can't remember one of those reality shows over in America. She was dropped from it, um, and, uh, that idea went out the window. But within a couple of days after Cheryl got dropped, um, Kate and William, uh, got uh, engaged. And that was an, another one of those sort of, sort of freak sort of doll sales is whenever Diana got uh, married um, Mattel at the time developed a, a um, Princess Diana doll so we were aware that here was another possible opportunity and we literally you know f- were phoning each other almost at the same time when we when we heard the news being announced and we said right that's the idea so we we knew from having the conversations about Cheryl and whatever else, the doll market was kind of in the back of our mind and we knew that there was a gap in the market for something a wee bit more wholesome like looking at the brands that were out there but this idea of the Kate Middleton doll was more just get us started, get the whole thing flowing and uh, you know, get our name out there Um so we what was the, the, the time scale between you got the idea to production? Yeah, it was really short. So, uh, they, I think they announced their, uh, engagement in November. We formed a company in the first week of December. I just completed my, um, my time in, in the previous company at the end of December. Uh, and in the background, we were sort of sculpting the doll. We were, uh, contacting the factories, getting pricing. Uh, but also we, we reached out to uh, Clarence House as well to just make sure that there was no IP issues. So they said, look, as long as you're complying with the regulations. But we, we also then we donated pretty much all of the profits that we made to the RNLI. Um, so from an IP perspective, I think we were fine that way. Uh, we complied with everything they said. Was there any reason for selecting the RNLA as, uh, as the chosen yeah, charity? Mom, you know, since I was a kid, my mum has always uh, fundraised for the RNLA here uh, in Ireland. My gra- Her dad was in the Merchant Navy and, and um, my dad's do- Joe Jackson from the hotel over there in Balbuffet. He would have been in the Merchant Navy and was sank a few times um, during the Second World War. So that the RNLI has always appealed to my mum and, and it was good to be able to do something give back a little bit so I think we raised close to about 20 grand for them um, in doing it but um, yeah so uh, that doll we, lo- we we 
launched it actually in the week before the royal wedding. So we did we did the first doll we did was actually on based on the engagement doll, and we knew that there was going to be a lot of press in London at that time. We didn't realize how much. Uh, we contacted Hamley's toy store. And we said, look, we're going to launch a Kate doll. And they were a little bit hesitant or whatever because we're a new vendor setting up and everything else. But they gave us a table. Um, and within uh, three days, we had something like 13 international TV crews do interviews with us. Uh, it was phenomenal. We were in pretty much every newspaper right around the world. You weren't expecting that, I'm sure. No, no. It was like we sold out within a couple of weeks. And though they were, I think they were 50 quid or something a, a pop, so they weren't cheap either, like so. Uh, but there's a lot of development costs and everything and testing that you gotta do. Um, but we sold it actually in Harrods, Hamleys, uh, FEO Schwartz over in New York as well, and, uh, Toys R Us in Australia took a few as well, but, um, that got us off the mark. We followed it up a few, months later with the actual outfits they wore on that day. I think it was featured on the toy show here in Ireland that year as well. You wouldn't believe it. I think about a third of our sales actually came from Ireland. <laughs> um, and, and they were 150 euros a pop. Like they were, they weren't cheap. Um, so while all of that was happening, because that was a pretty straightforward process. Um, when, when we were doing it as well, we, we, we tried to tie in with up-and-coming fashion designers in the UK. So whilst it looked like what they were wearing, they, they were actually different designers. And so we were promoting those businesses while we were doing our own because it, it was a huge amount of press to give, to get, to receive, whatever. But uh, others benefited from it as well. And that was really cool because you were giving back a little bit that way as well. And they were also doing the TV interviews, so it raised their profile a bit. Um I, I, there was there was a lot of learnings in that in that you know the combined uh, impact of having multiple people working on the same project uh, is much greater than than you know you doing it yourself and also getting timing right and uh, having something that's press worthy in, in a way as well helps you know that it's free marketing basically so um, and given the reaction to the product you were very well aware that you, you got it right yeah we were and we got it first so it, we were first to the market with it as well so being first is a big one as well um, it's something we've learned in, in Lottie later on because you know a lot of the stuff that we've done with Lottie um it, it, it steps up a little bit of a level because of the competitors that are within our market. Are, are some of them are quite ruthless, um, and we have been beaten to the mark a few times where their own market intelligence found what we were doing and, and came came to the market first. The, the lolly doll has evolved over the last nine or ten years. Can you talk to me a bit about that evolution? Yeah. Uh, so at the very beginning. Um, it started off, I suppose, with a gut feel that there was a gap in the market. So we knew that we didn't feel comfortable buying what was on shelves at that time. Uh, it just, you know, that there was sort of ghoulish dolls and there was uh, the, the body shapes of some of the other dolls. They're, they're just highly sexualized or something. It just didn't feel right to be giving those to kids. I suppose we didn't really understand what it was until... 
we came across an article. There's a lady called Dr. Margaret Ashwell, who's head of the British Nutrition Foundation, and she wrote about this discovery uh, by t- a couple of academics. Uh, one of them was Australian, um, and they discovered that playing uh, with skinny dolls, you were, uh, your kids were, were developing body image issues later in life. Um, so that was published in 2006. Did that surprise you, those findings? Yeah, but what surprised me, that, 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 didn't, that didn't necessarily surprise me, but what did surprise me was that nobody in the market had actually taken it on board. Like, retailers didn't take it on board, and, and retailers actually have, have as much power, if not more power, because they, they are the buying dollars behind, you know, if a retailer says to a manufacturer, look, this is what I want you to do. They'll do it because it's their dollars that 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 takes the risk on on, um, on getting something onto the shelf. So the the retailers didn't take it on board. They, um, the 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 manufacturers themselves did nothing. You know, we launched Lottie in two thousand and twelve, so we're literally in our tenth year this year, and um, we were the first to look at developing a doll with the average proportions of a human. So um, our, our dolls sculpted on the average proportions of a nine-year-old child. The head's a little bit larger to allow for hair play, but the whole body is sculpted uh, on the average proportions of a child. There's so, Ian, was yeah. there much time spent on research and development before you, you, you actually decided on the final product? Yeah, so... Um, one of the first things we did was was contact Dr. Ashwell, and she put us in touch with lots of other child development experts, from uh, from body image experts to child psychologists um, to nutrition experts and play experts. We then contacted retailers. We asked retailers, you know, what is it that you want? Where's the gaps in the market? And they pretty much told us, look, you need to do exactly what's on the market, but just give a little twist on it and put your own mark on it. It needs to be the same height and the packaging needs to be the same. Um, it needs to be the clothes that you make with it needs to, to play with all their dolls that are on the market. And we ignored all of that advice, uh, pretty much. And we instead, followed what kids told us what that they wanted. So kids, uh, one of the other discoveries we found was that 60 years ago when dolls first came to market, the average age of the user was 12, and a 12-year-old aspires to be like their mum. Now the average age of it, uh, like childhood has compressed that much, you know, with all the content that we receive nowadays from TV, videos, music, everything. Childhood has compressed that much that the average age of the user now is five to six years of age and a five-year-old aspires to be like their older sister, like a nine-year-old instead of a an adult. So we sculpted Lottie on a child and that one little piece there allows you to do so many different things that are different to other brands that are out in the market. You know, you're focusing now on childhood instead of what you want to be when you grow up. You know, it's... So it's pretty much in the now, is it? It's in the now. It's relatable. It's, uh, you know, we try to build in little educational elements, so we, we do quite a lot on STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, and maths. Um, we obviously are addressing things like body image and, and gender stereotypes and things like that. Um like the, the the second year that we developed our doll, we um, discovered that the average proportions of a boy and uh, a girl at age nine are pretty much identical. Um, you know, it's pre pre pubescent. So 
we um, use the same doll for both boy and girl. Um, so the, the clothes fit either one of them and, you know, that's how we address the, the, the gender stereotypes. So the girls can become astronauts, they can become scientists, they can play football, they can do whatever a boy or, or uh, has been doing as well. So, And obviously the seals speak for themselves, Ian? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. I mean, like... As a startup company, um, this is one of the, if not the most uh, competitive categories because there is a barrier to entry in that you have to spend quite a lot on tooling and testing in advance of even selling any doll. Uh, and you're talking, you know, to bring, to tool a doll, you can be talking 50,000. You can to test it every year. It's another 3,000 for every single product. So... You need to be, you need to be willing to take risk and, uh, within the category, it's dominated by four or five players. Now, the doll category represents 10% of all toys that are sold, uh, and it's then dominated by three companies, uh, pretty much would take up 90% of the entire category. So you're pretty much pitting yourself against the biggest companies in the toy uh, industry, you know, some of them anyway. Um, so we started off, because we didn't do what retailers asked of us, it already marginalised us. So um, we actually sold into a couple of retailer, mass retailers in our first year, and uh, from conversations we were having with them, sell-through went well, everything was good. Uh, one of them was in Canada, another one was here in Europe. Uh, they're, you know, pretty much the biggest retailers in both countries and, uh, or continent even. Uh, and the following year when we were due to meet them at the toy shows, they were going, no, sorry, we're not interested. Another three or four months later, there was another doll on the market with virtually the same name and the same height. So what had happened was the biggest supplier to now to those retailers um, sold a doll pretty much um, covering everything that we had, you know, spent a year and a half researching in. Was that a fear that you had? Yeah, to be honest, you know, it's hard to know at the time. It's hard to know when to be aggressive and to be to protect your IP because we spent an awful lot on trademarks right around the world and. In hindsight, we possibly should have, and it would have caused an awful lot of ruckus, you know. And that was my fear, was if we appear to be too aggressive, will other retailers um, run away from us? Um, and in hindsight, I should have just stuck with it and gone after them. I mean, you need an awful lot of money on legal fees to do that, and maybe that might have sunk us anyhow. Uh, I know that it, there, there are cases within the toy industry that that, you know, MGA did it with Mattel and they nearly went under as well just on legal fees. Um, it, it wasn't Mattel in this case. No, it was a different company. But, um, uh, yeah, it's an extremely competitive category, uh, very aggressive, um, and it's hard to believe it, you know, when you're talking about dolls. <laughs> it's, it's funny, but... Um, but there's a lot of money involved in it. And there, we'll take a break. Business Matters, in association with the Faculty of Business at ATU Donegal. Looking for a career in financial services? Consider the Level 9 MA in Governance, Compliance and Data Protection. 
take the next step in your career and contact the Exec Ed Coordinator on 918206 or email execed, E-X-E-C-E-D, at lyit.ie today. You're welcome back. Before the break, Ian was talking about the highly competitive nature of the doll-making sector. Focused on building up distribution ourselves, selling to... We had a team of about 20 or so at one stage here in, in Donegal, but at that point we were we were doing all of the distribution ourselves into the UK, Ireland, and a lot of Europe from... Uh, uh, we had a warehouse in, in Convoy and we had another in London. Uh, so we did all the trade shows across Europe and in the UK and Ireland here, um, and we had built up a sales team to manage that. But once we came to a certain point, it made more sense then to offload the distribution side to distributor to to another distributor. So now we've we've about twenty different distributors that manage our distribution across the world, uh, covering about thirty six countries for us. So they we we manufacture in China. They take it directly from the port. Once it's manufactured, the factory delivers it to the port, and then it's it's up to the distributor to sell it into retailers after that. Now we do, we are primarily focused on independent retailers, bookstores, department stores. It's a different channel to what the toy market normally is. All of the, like in uh, in the toy category, 80% of all sales is done to um, mass market. Uh, so the likes of um, Walmart, uh, Target, and Amazon, they, the three of them make up 80% in America. And it's the same in every country. There's about three retailers make up the majority of the sales. Tell me, Ian, what impact did uh, the start of the pandemic have on your business? To us, it was, it was pretty brutal, actually. Um, at, because so much of our sales were, were at that stage to distributors, pretty much all of our distributors stopped ordering um, and it f- we, we were fortunate though um, because we had spent the previous six, seven years uh, being focused on building up our online presence and in every country that we sell as well we m- um, make sure that we retain the Amazon account uh, we, we don't sell directly to Amazon, we ship our product into Amazon, they sell it on our behalf and um, it's called FBA Fulfilled by Amazon so they we're listed on their platform. We still own it. We still sell um, the product, and and uh, they pay us a couple of days later. But um, that model is um, you know there's a lot of people complain about Amazon, and, and I can agree with all all of those points. Um, but what it does allow companies to do is grow without the reliance on big retailers, uh, and they are now the biggest retailer in the world. Um, Certainly in our category anyway. Um, it allows us to go into markets, have same day delivery right around the world, um, and, and compete with those big retailers that, that refused to take us on at the time. Um, so yeah, no, it's, um, the pandemic really affected us, but we were able to offset it by growing our online business. They, our online business, Pretty much doubled, and uh, it offset the drop in in um, orders from distributors. And then, whenever the stores reopened again, we were able to maintain our online business to the same level. 
and uh, have that distribution model as well. So last year we ended up about 40% up. It uh, was our best every year last year. Was that a surprise? It was in a way, but uh, to be honest, I'd be very optimistic in, in, in our own business. I mean, the opportunities within our business is phen- are phenomenal, um, but it's uh, there's so many variables that you got to get right. Um, is competition the big, the big one? Yeah, competition, but also like anybody that is selling online, you know, there are so many different things. You know, it can be logistics, it, it can be competitors. In in our case, last year we could have grown significantly more, but um, we discovered that um, Amazon themselves were buying our product from a retailer who was backdooring it and listing it on our on our uh, on the platform, and what that has a lot of impact. It 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 restricts you from marketing your product. So um, I always um, describe it as like spinning plates and. You know the the velocity of that plate spinning just slows down, and it, and it takes an awful lot to get it back up again. And sometimes you don't know what's happening or why it's happening. Um, and plates can fall, and to get it back up again, you know, it it it, uh, it takes an awful lot of work. Um, so, as in particular with Amazon as well, it, you know, they are extremely aggressive. So you need to f- do it the right way uh, so we, we were able to work with our distributor and go through pretty much every account and look for unusual activity and we eventually discovered who was doing it and they were just um, they were shut off but basically because there, there's European legislation on, on, on competitive practices or whatever but you, as, as long as you, you follow the right rules um, you're okay and did Brexit have any impact on your operations? It did. Um, I didn't expect it to because we were told by Amazon that um, everything was fine. But then whenever it happened, uh, we've discovered that all of the orders to Ireland for, uh, in particular, um, shipping from the UK, were just stopped. So we had to register uh, in for VAT in quite a few different European countries and um, we then were able to ship from Germany to Ireland and we were doing it pretty much at zero profit because of the cost of postage and everything but um, it kept that business taken over but it, yeah, Ireland it's not a big part of our business, Ireland but um, it's one it's an important, an extremely important one um, to keep it, you know, uh, because our business, a lot of it is word of mouth, and Irish people are the biggest advocates of your brand whenever uh, you're looking to grow, uh, and especially in, you know, in a in a world where we're really focused online, you know, social media, um, uh, whether it's you know the the, the Facebooks, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, or um, even in, on forums, you know, mother mother forums um, or parent forums. Um, that's been a huge benefit to our business. You know, I was just thinking, selling your product into over 30 countries around the world, that doesn't come with, with a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, though, it, it's a lot easier now with... Um, like, So I said that we were at um, 20 people at one stage. We're down now to 10 or so or less. And it's a lot easier... Um, 
you know, uh, if you can outsource parts of your business to other people who have infrastructure and capability and everything else, um, and that's what we've done, you know, with the majority of our business now, the team that are remaining, we are primarily focused on IP development and online sales. Um, we use a lot of, um, tools, um, you know, uh, IT tools that allow us, a lot of it's communication, you know, whether it's there are customer service tools or our communication tools or development tools uh, or inventory management and logistics or finance tools. Like we have invested in, you know, the best pretty much that's out there. So a lot of it is automated. Um, it's all uh, process driven and, and automated as much as we possibly can, yeah. Tell me, Ian. What's the biggest lesson you've learned in business so far? Uh, at the beginning, I suppose, it's about what you put into it, you know. Um, and, and I did put in seven days a week at the very beginning. Um, uh, the biggest, biggest lesson... Is probably following your own gut as well. Um, like some of the decisions that we made were based, uh, contrary to the advice that we were given, you know, like, for example, uh, not following what retailers told us. Um, you know, we did a doll a different size, uh, didn't fit any of the, the other dolls in the market, didn't fit their play, play sets, didn't, didn't fit on retail shelves. Didn't um, didn't hit the price point. So we're a little bit more expensive as well. Only fractionally more expensive. Like, um, but yeah, uh, it's just following your gut. I think. Yeah. Um, is there someone that has had the biggest influence on your business life? Yeah, uh, my, my parents um, have instilled in it us, the, our, our whole family, <laughs> because we were. Um, because we were, um, my grandfather at the hotel, we were all working in the hotel from probably when we were about 14 years of age, I'd say. Um, so there's always been a work discipline in our family. Um, and actually, you know, I'd say that to all parents. I think I'd highly advise them to get into that customer-facing uh industry as as young as you possibly can where you're meeting customers and dealing with people like the skills that you learn from that they're i don't know if you can really put your finger on it but being able to deal with people at a very young age is a huge benefit yeah and is there someone in business that you admire most well i have one of the first people i reached out to whenever i started was uh, sir jerry robinson and sir jerry actually also was an accountant and started off in a toy company would you believe it in london and uh, I reached out to him, and, and we met a number of times there in London. Um, I've always admired what he did and what he achieved. And he always, like, one of the things that he always said was about, uh, you know, if you haven't got your work done, like, because I was in huge hours, uh, he says, if you haven't got your work done by five o'clock in the, in the afternoon, you're not doing it right. And I was going, but Jerry, look, I'm doing everything. I'm doing finance. I'm doing project development. I'm doing logistics. Like when you were starting out on your own, <laughs> I can't literally do it all. Uh, and he was going, well, you're not doing it right. <laughs> I was going, but Jerry, <laughs> you just, 
he stood by it like even you know from a startup business to a, to uh, to a multinational business he, he he's right in a way you know he, um, I, I, I suppose I've learnt a little bit of that from uh, recent times now where I've sort of tried purposefully to step back a little bit from the business has that been difficult? Uh, not really, you know. Um, I think because we've all been a little bit burnt out from the pandemic, uh, and uh, we all really want some sort of change. You know, we, we we have changed from being working in an office environment to working at home, but we all like want to do things a little bit differently now. So it, it kind of came to that point where uh, I suppose I put my hand up and for the Fen Harps uh, board before Christmas and um, I'd been on it 20 years prior to that and I knew it's going to be a huge amount of work I, th- I thought well and rightly so I think the most the hardest job in that whole club is the treasurer role and I'd done that so I thought right okay I've done the toughest job now so it can't be any worse than that but every job is different too like it's all they all have their own demands and uh, um, sorry, what was the motivation to take on the, the chairman's role? Yeah, uh, m- my dad has been involved in Finharps since since we were kids. Um, and we, I've been going to games with him since probably was at six or seven years of age. Uh, he had every, not, not every role, he, he would have been in secretary role for, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 years. Uh, and then also he was... Um, step in manager for a couple of seasons as well um, so I got to see quite a bit of the different sides to it and, and, and a lot of the stresses as well because you know people would have been you didn't really have whatsapp groups back then everybody was calling to the house after matches or during the week to discuss different issues and you know that was, that was an education in itself too, yeah, it? yeah my dad actually would allow me to sit in on some of those as well so yeah, I did get to uh, yeah, you're, there's there's education happening there without you really knowing it, um, and, and a lot of it, you know, within committees and things like that. It can be politics, it can be people, it can be a fun fundraising is is the huge part of it as well, and the stresses that that bring. Um, so, what are your aims and aspirations for the club as chairman? At the minute, you know, we're, we're, I'm, I'm sort of sitting back a little bit on and, and just listening to everybody and and. You can't but be impressed by volunteerism. You know, the work that people are doing in this club. I think, you know, ourselves in Sligo are probably, and maybe Drogheda, that level of volunteerism is just unreal. It is so, like, people doing it for the love of doing it, and you can't really buy that, you know. Um so I'm sitting back and I'm observing an awful lot. Um, uh, there's, you know, some things or, or, or plans that I'd like to do, but I haven't really started that. I, I want to do like strategic plans over the next three to five years. The stadium is something, you know, that uh, we need to get built. So, um, how soon do you see that being completed? Um, Hopefully, we'll have, there will be announcements, uh, you know, this year. Um, there, if not, you know, in, in the more immediate term, um, there are just some discussions going on, uh, behind closed doors at the moment about how that 
you know, funding. You know, we've got the government grant at the moment, and we've got other partners, and it's just getting everyone to agree to what that is and the timing of it. Um, it's it's made a little bit more difficult because of the current economic climate, but um, you know, you can always have excuses. So we we, we just need to get ahead and go and do it. Um, so yeah, no, I, I'd be confident that we'll be making announcements in the near future about it. Yeah, and balancing the books, Ian, is always the the big job, isn't it? Do you know, um, I one of the first things I did when I came in is I actually uh, I took a copy of the accounts for the last ten years, and cumulatively, like over the last ten years, the club has made. Uh, over 170,000 profit over the last 10 years, or nine years it was, yeah. And, um, you know, we hit a really bad patch whenever the crash happened. But since then, there's been about 120 grand's worth of debt paid off, um, in the last nine years. And that's never really talked about in our club. Like, and that's good management. Like, that's people doing stuff voluntarily. There's still, there's a lot of criticism, you know, within clubs and committees and everything else, and people don't recognize the work that goes on behind the closed doors. Uh, and successes aren't really celebrated as much, you know. That is a huge, like, 170 grand profit. Like, people in Donegal probably didn't even know that. The debt has been paid down over that, like, bank loans are gone now. With no bank loans left in the club. Um, there is debt, um, but it's, it's, uh, it's money that's been put in by uh, current and previous uh, directors of the club, but that's getting paid down as well, and there's a plan in place for that. But you know, I think the recognition needs to be in there for that. Um, I think um, you know, whenever I was on the committee twenty years ago, uh, we were talking about uh, on the underage, and in the last. Uh, in the last 10 years, really, uh, we've got the academy and it's competing and winning, you know, the national league titles. Uh, and, and back then, I remember sitting on the board and going, how in God's name are we going to afford this, you know? And now all of a sudden we're doing it and we're, you know, the envy of a lot of clubs right around the country. Like we have a lot of really good, positive and great people, really good people in the club. And it should be celebrated and it should be supported. And when we do come to look, you know, get our plan in place for how we're going to build a stadium, I do hope that the people of Donegal come out and recognise that. Um, yeah. Tell me, have you a favourite player of all time from your uh, supporting days at Van Herbs? Yeah, I suppose a lot of people there would have... Uh, I, I was lucky whenever I was a, I was brought in quite young and I would have seen Brendan Bradley play uh, and score. Um, and after him, Con McLaughlin. And, you, and and the great thing is, Con is, you know, you still see him, you meet him downtown, or if you're ever un- unfortunate enough to be in hospital, you bump into Con. But... Um, uh, and he's a legend. Uh, and then, you know, um, I always remember, uh, John Jared McGettigan would, but it would have been one of my favorite players when I was a kid. Um, uh, also Paddy McGranahan was able to do things that were just, he was a contrary sort of a player, but he, he was able to do magical things with his feet. Um, uh, and then, you know, 
Ah, uh, there, there's there's so many. Um, there's some people I would have been at the club for a short period of times and moved on or whatever. But you always remember the people that that uh, came from the county and, and played for your club as well. So, just talking about you, your younger days, in uh, what advice would you give your 21 year old self? Uh, I don't think I ever really suffered from it myself, but I would say just don't stress the small stuff. Like. Um, one of any time that I am stressed, one of the things that I do is get to bed early, get out, go for a walk. Um, how no matter how bad you think that problem is that you're currently facing, it's never as bad the next morning, and you'll be wondering why did I stress so much about that? Uh, and, and you know, <laughs> being back in the in the football club again, that's certainly the case as well. I think I got shingles actually about two weeks after joining the club, <laughs> and I was just going, "Oh God, what do I have to do?" But um, do you know what? You just don't worry about stuff. Don't stress. Get your sleep. Uh, look after yourself as well. Like um, trying to get a, get a bit of exercise at the moment now, but it's not easy when you've two little kids running around the house as well. And finally, Ian, what lies ahead for yourself and your business? Um, so we look. Um, I'm fortunate. My wife Sophia works in the business as well. She's got some great ideas, and actually, this year's development was all done by her. So. A huge credit to her as well. She's um, she's finding creative parts to her that she never really uh, um, believed in before. So that's it, great to see that. And we'll, we'll, we're looking to stretch it into um, other categories as well. Like um, one of the things that I'm always asked whenever I'm uh, being talked to by toy press is, you know, what's the next thing? What's the next? But we've always uh being really focused on Lottie. Like there it's it's so easy to get distracted by doing other things. So we're sticking with Lottie and we're just um building it out a little bit more. So in terms of play patterns and and uh carry cases and things like that, yeah. Ian Harkin, co founder and managing director of Lottie Dolls and chairperson of Funhurst Football Club. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us on Business Matters. Thanks very much, Q. Well, that's it for this edition of Business Matters. Thanks to my guest, Ian Harkin. Thanks to Kevin Fury on Sound. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, drop an email to businessmatters at heidenradio.com. Business Matters, in association with the Faculty of Business at ATU Donegal. Looking for a career in financial services? Consider the Level 9 MA in Governance, Compliance and Data Protection. Take the next step in your career and contact the Exec Ed Coordinator on 9186206 or email execed, E-X-E-C-E-D, at lyit.ie today.